Growing up, my two little boys had more guts than brains. We had a favorite game we would play when my wife was at work. My sons at the time were about seven and three. Here's how that game went. We lived in a house with a big family room. At the end of the family room was a door to the basement with 13 steps and a landing at the bottom. I'd say to the boys, you want to play launch? They'd squeal as I opened the basement door. They'd run to the far side of the family room and I'd pop down those 13 stairs. They'd call, ready daddy? I'd yell, launch. One by one, they would run full speed across the family room and launch themselves off the top step down the 13 stairs. I'd catch one, then the next, then they'd run back up the stairs and repeat. Launch worked because my boys believed I was strong enough to catch them and that I was kind enough never to step aside and let them crash into the wall at the bottom of the stairs. I want you to rivet that picture of my boys flying down that stairs into my arms into your head. You now have the biblical definition of the word believed. It's sprinkled throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is saturated with it. We learned at the beginning of chapter 15 in Genesis, when God told Abraham he'd have as many descendants as the stars in the sky, Abraham believed him. He backed up to the far wall, ran full tilt, and launched himself into the trustworthy awaiting arms of a strong, faithful God. We also learned what happened when he did that, and God counted it to him as righteousness. I asked my students if they know what righteousness means. Often they'll reply things like, doing the right things. Then I give them this illustration. I release class early and we all go out on the playground. I'll pick on a large boy in the class for my example. We'll call him Braden. I tell my students, we're out on the playground and you hear Braden and I getting into a bit of a disagreement. It starts to get heated and as you turn to look, you see Braden punch me right in the face. He drops me like a bad habit. With one punch, he puts me to sleep. All day, you and your classmates are wondering, will Mr. Nelson ever wake up? And what is going to happen to Braden? The next morning, you tiptoe into homeroom. I'm standing there, looking normal, except for the large bruise on my face. Just before the bell, you're shocked as Braden also walks into class and sits down at his desk. I look over at Braden and begin to walk toward him. Uh-oh, you think? But when I get to his desk, I smile and say, Good morning, Braden. How are you doing? He smiles back and we fist bump. I ask my class, What do you think happened between him dropping me on the playground and me fist bumping him the next morning in class? They respond, Well, somehow you made things right. I then go to the whiteboard and write righteousness. Only I write it right dash us dash ness. Right usness. Right usness. It's right between you and me. That's the proper definition of righteousness, a relationship that's been restored. Prior to Genesis 15:6, Abraham was separated from God. His lie to Pharaoh about Sarai being his sister wasn't his only sin, trespass, or twistedness. Yet in Genesis 15:6, God fist bumps Abraham and says, We're good. It's right between you and me. How did that happen? Abraham went all in and launched himself at God. What makes a sinful, separated man right with God? It's going all in on who God is and what he says he'll do. Abram, the patriarch, the trunk of the tree, 
shows all of us branches on the tree how we are made right with God, going all in on who he is and what he says he'll do. Please remember that. We'll be returning to it often. Perhaps still standing there under the stars, God tells him, I'm going to give you this land, Abram, as I promised earlier, but your descendants are going to have to wait a while for it. In fact, 400 years. God tells him what will happen in those 400 years. They'll be in another land where eventually they'll be made slaves and oppressed, but God will bring them back into this land he promised Abram. God then gives him a reason for that delay. It says it at the end of chapter 15. He'll keep them in this temporary place until the twistedness of the current residence is filled up, overflowing, no longer tolerable. File that away in your soul. God wants all his kids back. He is for the ultimate good of all people. He wants the Canaanites back. And he's putting his land promise to Abraham and his descendants on pause mode for 400 years to try and reach them. God asks Abram then to perform an ancient rite, an ancient rite of contract signing. He's to cut a few animals in half and spread the halves apart. The text tells us God, in the form of a torch, passes between the pieces of cut up animals. I explained to my students what God is doing here and it's amazing. When two people wanted to make a solemn promise over a serious matter, they would cut an animal in half. Then they would walk together between the two pieces. In doing so, they were saying, may God do to us what we've done to this animal if we break this covenant, if we break this contract. May God cut us in half if we're unfaithful to it. God writes up a contract. Abram, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Then God alone walks through the pieces. May this be done to me if I don't keep my word. And you can take it to the bank. Okay, God, Abram might have thought, but there's a small problem. You can't give this land to my descendants if I don't have any. He may have had conversations with Sarai about this. Whatever happened, Sarai came up with plan C. Remember, Abram's plan B was adopting Eleazar. Sarai's plan C was having a surrogate baby through her handmaid, Hagar. Have a baby with Hagar, Abe. The text tells us Abram agreed, so Sarai gave Hagar to Abram as a wife. Wrong, Abram. One man, one woman, glued together for life. At 85, Abram hears he's about to become a daddy. Hagar is pregnant with his baby. The text tells us Hagar started having a little fun at Sarai's expense. I picture her sitting at the kitchen table talking about how the baby moved all night and kept her awake. Sarai's growling in the corner. Sarai lashes out and treats Hagar so poorly, Hagar packs her maternity clothes and runs away to the wilderness. God meets Hagar in the wilderness and tells her to go back home. God promises her a multitude of descendants. When she gets back home, she gives birth to Abraham's first son, a boy, and names him Ishmael. Abram now has a son, a firstborn son. Fast forward 13 years. Abram is now 99 years old. At 99, God changes his name. He puts the Ha in Abram's name. He's now Abraham. In the Hebrew language, the ha is essentially an exclamation point. Abram, exalted father, or father of many, 
is now exalted, exalted father, or father of many, many, exclamation point. Well, at least he has one kid, 13-year-old Ishmael. In chapter 17, God repeats his covenant, his commitment to give Abraham's descendants the land. God will unconditionally give it to them. Keeping it will be up to them maintaining the rules of the covenant. God gives them the first rule. I want a special sign on the bodies of your males. It will identify you as the people of the covenant. I want you to take your little boys on day eight and circumcise them. It'll be hidden. It will be between you and I. You will be my special people. Not special in the sense of extremely good or better, but special in the sense of I picked you out. Kind of like God picking them out to be his UPS drivers. You'll be bringing the package, the stomper, as well as my revealed word, the scriptures. Abraham, I'm changing your wife's name too. Her name will no longer be Sarai, but Sarah, princess. And one more thing, Ishmael will not carry the stomper. Sarah will. Abraham began to laugh to himself in disbelief. Seriously, God? I'm 99 years old, and she's no spring chicken at 89 either. How could you do this? No, Lord, bless Ishmael. God says, I will bless Ishmael, but Sarah will have a son. In fact, here's the name. You'll call him Isaac. With him, I'll reconfirm the covenant I made with you. It will be Isaac, Abram. Got it? Abram backed up to the far wall, and then he played launch. That very day, Abram and all of his male servants and Ishmael were circumcised as God commanded. Perhaps only a few days later, three men show up in Abraham's camp. Where's your wife Sarah, they ask. She's in the tent, Abraham replies. We're here to tell you, paint the nursery. This time next year, you'll have a son in it. Sarah's listening at the keyhole of the tent. She scoffs to herself. One of the men says to Abram, why did Sarah just laugh in the tent? Then continues, is anything too hard for the Lord? Sarah pops her head out of the tent and denies it. One of the visitors looks her in the eyes and said, no, you did laugh. Sarah's not perfect either. The conversation ends with the visitors explaining to Abraham they're about to nuke Sodom and Gomorrah. They're about to nuke Sodom and Gomorrah because of their overwhelming sin. There's just one problem. Abram's nephew Lot lives down there. Abram tries to talk them out of it. He appeals to the fairness of God. Would God destroy a city with righteous residents? Starting at 50 residents, he whittles the messengers down to 10. They agree if they can find 10 righteous people, remember what righteousness means, if they can find 10 righteous people in Sodom, they'll leave it alone. They won't find 10. In fact, they may not find any at all. And we'll discover that in our next word picture.